The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Come on in well. It thrills my heart to see more chairs being brought out. That's, that's a, it's a happy day. Thank you very much. God bless you. And what's even happier for me is I've noticed that um, increasing number of people bringing their Bibles to class today, so God bless you for that as well. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, uh, we are in an ongoing study, really, of the first part of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, section known, of course, as the Beatitudes. And uh, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, um, but if you have other translations, the NIV or the RSV, that's perfectly fine. Any of those translations is a good translation. Um, but this is the one that I prefer. It's actually the one that I understand you use in church on Sunday as well. So it's a great translation, a modern translation based upon the most ancient of manuscripts. So you're getting a very accurate translation here. Well, if you take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 5, let's just go ahead and read through the Beatitudes again. There are only about uh, 11 or 12 verses here. They're pretty straightforward, and then we're going to come back and take a closer look at them. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Last week we took a look at the uh, first of the Beatitudes, and I've tried to fix that. I do not understand why it goes off the screen. I'm going to have to get Jordan to help me out because she's the technologically savvy one, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a little challenged when it comes to that sort of thing. thing to remember we said, though, when you're talking about the Beatitudes, really when you're talking about the whole Sermon on the Mount, is that it is descriptive, it is not prescriptive. In other words, Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount to us in order to tell us to get our act together, in order to get our lives together and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, morally speaking. Uh, what he is giving here is a description of what it means to live and be a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. So it is more a picture of what we are called to be if we are Christians, of what we are, in fact, if we are Christians, rather than a command for us to become like this. 
which means that it is a wonderful diagnostic tool for our spiritual health. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, you'll know them by their fruit. Now, we all know that we are not saved by our works. Paul makes that point very clear. We are saved by grace. Well, what is grace? Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. If you want to, I have a great illustration for, for grace, Chuck Swindoll. Any of you familiar with Charles Swindoll? Chuck Swindoll, many of you are. He's on the radio from time to time. He wrote a wonderful little book uh, some years ago, and he had this illustration in it about what grace is. He said, I was 12 years old, and it was my birthday. And he said, my father was outside. It was a hot summer day. They lived in Texas. And my father was outside my window, and he was weeding the flower garden for my mother. And he said, Chuck, come on out here and give me a hand. And he said, and I responded as only a sassy 12-year-old can respond on his birthday. No, it's my birthday. And he said, my dad broke the 100-meter run record that day. <laughs> he said he was in my room so fast I didn't know what was happening, and he was spanking my bottom the whole way out to the flower garden. And he said, I knelt there and I weeded the flower garden until the moonlight was shining on the daisies. <laughs> he said, and then I went into my room chagrined that I had done this on my birthday. And five minutes later, my father came in and said, get dressed, let's go. And he said, where? And he said, we have a surprise birthday party planned for you. <laughs> he said, what I got earlier in the day is what I deserved. What I got that night, what I didn't deserve, that was grace. That was grace. It's what we don't deserve, but God gives to us anyway. And so we need to realize we're saved by grace. We're not saved by anything that we do. Otherwise, we rob Jesus and the cross of its power. And yet, we have been saved from something for something, for good works. If you were here on my first sermon, you heard me talk about that a little bit. And so our good works don't save us, but they are the evidence of our salvation. They are the fruit of the fact that we are now in communion with Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, we need to remember that this is not meant to tell us what we should be doing. It's a description of what we are doing if we are, in fact, believers. And so Jesus is painting a picture for us of citizens of the kingdom of God. And he says the first thing about a citizen of the kingdom of God is that they are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we took a look at what that meant. We said it's not a reference to a financial condition. It's interesting, in Luke's version of the story, which is a sort of abbreviated Reader's Digest condensed version, Jesus simply said, blessed are the poor. And if he had stopped there, and we didn't have the version that we have before us today, the Matthew version, we would have thought that Jesus was simply talking about financial circumstances. In which case, it would be the responsibility of the Christian church to go out and make sure that everybody was bankrupt. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Here in Matthew's version, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, we said it's not a financial condition, but nor is it a depressive condition. It is not a lack of self-esteem. You and I are of value and consequence. My goodness, Jesus Christ came into the world and mounted the arms of the cross for you and for me. What that tells us is that you, no matter who you are, no matter what your past may be, you are of infinite value to God. 
You're of infinite value to God. And if that doesn't boost your self-esteem, nothing will. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and not just sinners, but to save you. To save you. When he cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He wasn't just talking about those Roman soldiers or the Jewish religious leaders who were deriding him and cursing him. He was talking about you and me. That's how much Christ loves you. So that should boost your self-esteem. Instead, we said, to be poor in spirit really means that you have a realistic understanding of who and what you are before a holy God. And we said that of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God, and you're going to hear it here in today's lesson from Revelation, in, our, in our, one of our first lessons uh, in church, of all the adjectives that are used to describe God, and there are many of them, God is merciful, He is forgiving, He is loving, He is long-suffering. You can go on and on and on. But of all the adjectives that are used to describe God, the one that is used more than any other is holy. God is the Holy One. And it doesn't mean just H-O-L-Y, it means W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is wholly other. He is in a category all his own. You and I tend to think that when it comes to holiness, and I think I explained this to you last week, but there's so many new people here today, so just give me an opportunity to give a brief review. When we think of holiness, most of us tend to think of holiness as what? Sort of a sliding scale. And at the very top, 100% holiness, you've got God, don't you? And then way down there at the bottom, 0% holiness, you've got the devil. And everybody else sort of falls somewhere along that scale. That's what we think, isn't it? And so, you know, you sort of get to 50%, and that's where a lot of people are. And then there are, there are a few of us, you know, that are 60%. And, and because we're all trusting that God grades on the curve, we're hoping that's a passing grade. And then you sort of work your way up a little bit further and you get 70% and you get to 80% and 90%. And those are really important people, you know, like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa. Uh, those people are up there. And then I said last week, you know, you get to 95% and that, that's the clergy of St. Philip's and they're, they're, they're up there somewhere. But that's the way we think of it. But the Bible says that is not the case at all. God is not even in the same category with us. He is wholly other. That's when Isaiah had that great vision of heaven and he saw the Lord seated upon his throne in all of his majesty. And he said, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and I have seen the Lord. Do we realize that we are nothing in comparison to God? This is one of the reasons I said last week. This is why I love the liturgy. This is one of the reasons why we come to communion. How? On bended knee. And in the posture of what? Beggars. On bended knee with hands uplifted. Why? Because, as the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, is to recognize who you are, not in terms of your relationship to other people, but who you are in terms of your relationship to God. Let me ask you a question. How good do you have to be in order to get into heaven? How good? Not very? Actually, you have to be perfect. That's not 80% good, 95% good. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
That's how good you have to get into heaven if you've got to do it on your own. That is why Christ comes and covers us with His perfect righteousness. With His perfect righteousness. So that's what it means to be poor in spirit. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 4, For they shall be comforted. And that's where we pick up today. The second beatitude is, Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over what? What are we mourning for? There are lots of things that you and I have mourned over or do mourn over over the course of our lives. Many of us mourn over death. This is a universal thing. We all face it sooner or later. There's an old tombstone in a churchyard in Aquia, Virginia, Stafford, Virginia, Aquia Church. Um, if you ever get a chance and you're driving up I-95 and you see uh, an exit for Aquia, pull off there and visit the old Aquia Church there in Stafford, Virginia. It's a remarkable old colonial church. But it has this wonderful old tombstone in there that says, Dear Pastor, pause as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you shall be. Tis best to prepare to follow me. Some wag took a stone and scratched underneath it. To follow you, I'll not consent until I know which way you went. (laughs) Fair enough. But the reality is we do all have an inevitable appointment with death, don't we? Sooner or later. And we all have lost loved ones. One of the most touching stories in the entire Bible comes from the Gospel of John where Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. Now, you know the story. Jesus lingered where he was for several days that Lazarus might die. So he went there for the whole purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. That was the whole purpose, to go there. And if you read the Gospel of John, you realize that that story is situated just before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You'll recall that up to this point, all of those huge crowds that had followed him in Galilee had dissipated by this point. Those crowds of 5,000, they were gone by that point in his ministry. But all of a sudden, they were back on Palm Sunday. Did you ever notice that? Shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the Gospel of John tells us why. It's because Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus raised three people that we know of in the Gospels from the dead. One was Jairus' daughter. One was the widow of Nain's son. And the third one was Lazarus. The first two were pretty much private affairs. Lazarus was a very public miracle. In fact, we're told that Lazarus had been in the grave for four days, so much so that the body had started to decompose. So when Jesus went there and said, roll away the stone, Mary and Martha said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. There'll be an odor. The King James said, he stinketh. You you can't do that. And yet Jesus said, roll away the stone. And of course, we know that's why he went there, to raise Lazarus from the dead. But isn't it interesting that when he got to the tomb, even though this was all part of the plan, and he saw Mary and Martha weeping and all the others weeping, we're told that Jesus wept. A little bit of trivia for you. That is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. And you say to yourself, well, why did he weep? This is why he had come. He'd come there to raise this man from the dead. It was all part of the plan. Set the stage for Palm Sunday, for the Holy Week, for the crucifixion, for the resurrection. All part of the plan. Why would Jesus then weep? 
Moments later, he was going to turn their mourning into joy. Why did he weep? I'll tell you why he wept or wept. He wept because he knew this is not the way it's supposed to be. And even though he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, this was a scene that was going to be repeated over and over and over again in countless families, in countless communities, for countless years to come. How many of you have ever lost a loved one? You know what it is to have your heart broken and to mourn. So we mourn over death. We also mourn from time to time over disappointment, don't we? How many opportunities have we seen slip through our fingers? Whether those are business opportunities or whether those are opportunities with our children or our grandchildren or our spouse. How many of you have ever mourned over a lost opportunity? That's it. Nobody else? We all do, don't we? There's an old statue in antiquity, a Greek statue, that shows the body of a man. And he's got a great forelock in front. He's got wings on his feet, but he is bald down his back. He has nothing. And underneath is this inscription, what is thy name? Answer, my name is Opportunity. Why hast thou wings upon thy feet that I may fly away swiftly? Why hast thou a great forelock that men may take hold of me when I come? Why art thou bald in back? Because when I am gone, none can lay hold of me. We've all had missed opportunities, and many of us mourn over that. But what's interesting is that while all of these are universal experiences, that's not what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, blessed are the mourning, for they shall be comforted. When Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. Jesus is not talking about death or loss or even disappointment. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount builds one beatitude on the next. So having just talked about a poverty of spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, Jesus is going to the next level and he's saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn what? Mourn their sin. If you see who you are in relationship to a holy and righteous God, If you can say, as Isaiah said, oh, I am undone, I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord, then you will mourn for your sin. This is one of the reasons I love um, Les Miserables. Have you ever read the book? There's a great scene in that book where we're told that Jean Valjean, after he was found out, after the the bishop gave him the candlesticks and so forth, there was a moment where, where we're told he saw himself, and I love this expression, in the light of eternity. That is to say, he saw himself, not as he imagined himself to be, but as he really was. And he was undone. So when you see yourself in comparison to a holy and righteous God, and you realize that you are a sinner, and you know that you've grieved the heart of God, then you begin to mourn. You mourn for your sin. And this is one of the reasons, again, why I love our liturgy, and I love the right one liturgy. I know some people like right two, and right two's fine. Right two's great. Right two's Christianity light, but it's still good. (laughs) 
But let me just um, read a little something to you from Rite 2. This is the confession of sin in Rite 2. And as I said, it's perfectly fine. But listen to it. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, and we are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Now, there's nothing wrong with that confession. It's wonderful, and it is true. But I want you to listen to the right one confession of sin. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is what? Grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life to the honor and glory of thy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wonderful thing about that confession is that you can almost hear the author grieving, mourning over his sin, not simply acknowledging but acknowledging and what? Bewailing. And let me tell you something. There's a big difference between acknowledging and bewailing. The child who gets his hand caught in the cookie jar may be sorry that he got caught, but that doesn't mean that he's sorry he did it. I will never forget when I was a teenager and being given strict instructions not to go to a certain place. I'm not telling you where, but I was not supposed to go there. My father had given strict instructions. And I sneaked out, and I went. And as the Scripture says, your sins will find you out. In this case, my father found me out, and he let me have it. He sat me down on the piano bench, and I mean he let me have it. And I was grounded. My kids call it being Amish. I I had nothing. I was no electronic device. Of course, in those days, you really didn't have an electronic device, but I wasn't allowed to do anything. And my father's last words to me were, now you go to your room and you ask yourself, was it worth it? Now go. And I went in there, and I closed the door. I thought to myself, was it worth it? Yep, it was worth it. (laughs) That's what I thought. Now, I acknowledge that I wasn't supposed to be there, but was I sorry that I had done it? No. And there's a big difference between that, isn't there? To acknowledge that we're sinners, to acknowledge that we've grieved the heart of God, it's another thing to be truly sorry for it. 
This is one of the reasons we should always be driven back to the Scriptures because when we are driven back to the Scriptures, we begin to see how true saints really understood themselves. A turn, if you will, keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 5 and turn to the book of Psalms. Psalms is an easy book to find. Just close your Bible and pretty much open to the middle. And you're either going to hit Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Proverbs, go to the left. And you'll hit Psalms. Psalm 51. In my Bible, you'll notice that it's headed to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, you know the story, I'm sure, that King David, Israel's greatest king, a man called a man after God's own heart. Now, you know what happened with David and Bathsheba. It's a fascinating story. You can read it and, um, well, we don't have time to go into it. I was going to say, we'll read it right now, but we don't have time. But the story goes that um, the scripture says that when the spring of the year had come and kings go out to war, David stayed at home. Now, that's very telling. Um, kings normally campaigned. Uh, wars were fought, even this was the way it was really up into the 19th century. Wars were generally fought in the summer and spring months because that's when armies could move. That's when the weather was, was good for moving an army. And the story goes that David's armies were campaigning, and the campaign was beginning again in the spring, and this is when kings went with their armies, but David, for one reason or another, stayed at home. We don't know why, but he stayed at home. And the story goes that one day he was out walking on the parapet of his palace and he looks over into the neighbor's palace and he sees this beautiful woman, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And Bathsheba is gorgeous. She is beautiful. And he's the king. And he sends for her. And he has an affair with her. And lo and behold, she falls pregnant. Now what is a king going to do? Even in those days, royal families had scandals. And so David decided that what he would do was take Uriah, who was not only a Hittite, but one of his chief lieutenants and army officers, and place him on the front line. Now, the first thing he does is he brings Uriah home. He says, Uriah's been out there campaigning for a long time. Let's bring Uriah home. And uh, his hope was that Uriah would come home, have a homecoming with his wife, perhaps have relations with her, and nobody would know whose child it really was. Uriah comes home. He's a very noble man. He will not go into his own home. He sits there at the gate because he cannot bear the thought of going and sleeping in luxury with his wife when his men are out in the field. So that doesn't work for David. So he's got a problem. So what is he going to do? He decides he's got to cover this affair up, so he sends Uriah out, and he gives orders that he be placed on the front lines in the next attack. And Uriah is killed. Now just think about this for a moment. This is Israel's greatest king. He's trying to cover up the affair. He even has a man killed in order to cover up the affair. He thinks it's all been swept under the carpet. What happens, of course, is that he is confronted by one of God's servants, a prophet by the name of Nathan. And Nathan comes to David and he tells a story about a man who was a poor man who had a rich neighbor. And the poor man had nothing except for a little lamb which he cared for as though it was one of his children. And we're told that the rich man came and stole 
the poor man's lamb and killed it and ate it. And when David heard this story, he said, whoever that man is, he deserves to die. And Nathan looked at him and he said, that man is you. That is what you have done. Psalm 51 is David's confession of sin when he's confronted with his own wickedness. Look at what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He's appealing to God on the basis of what? His own goodness? He's appealing to God on the basis of his steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. That's a very interesting verse, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. What does it mean to be purged with hyssop? Well, on the Day of Atonement in ancient Israel, once a year, the people would bring their animals, and they would be sacrificed. And then the high priest would come out and he would dip a hyssop branch in the blood of the sacrificed animals and sprinkle the people that their sins had been atoned. So when David is saying, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, he's saying, what I have done deserves death. Provide a sacrifice for me because I have nothing to offer. And he goes on to say that. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. It's a broken heart. It's a contrite heart. It's a heart that acknowledges and bewails. And bewails what? Ah, but it's more than that. What do we say in the confession of sin? We acknowledge and bewail our... Ah, there. Three words, very important. Manifold. They are many. And our sins, but also our what? Our wickedness. That is so powerful, folks. Because most of the time we think that what? Because we sin, that makes us wicked. Actually, we're wicked. And that's why we sin. It's the reverse, you see. We're not wicked because we sin. We sin because we're wicked. Isn't that what David says here in this psalm? He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I'm going to make reference to this in the sermon this morning. We are all OS positive. Original sin positive. We are all infected with the disease, and we are born with it. And it is for that which Jesus Christ came into this world. It's unfortunate, but many people do not take sin seriously this day. 
Now, some years ago, I was eating at the Outback Steakhouse, and I was looking at the dessert menu, and they had a dessert on there called the Sydney's Sinful Sunday. And that's just sort of the way we talk about sin today, isn't it? You know, you go up to somebody and you say, oh, Mark Bouton, you old sinner. We sort of say that, you know, with sort of a lilt in our voice and a wink in our eye. That's what we tend to say. We tend to turn sin into something that is terribly delicious. That's what sin is, isn't it? It's sinfully good. But was it always this way? There's a wonderful little book I can commend to you by Cornelius Plantinga called not the way it's supposed to be. That's the title of the book. Not the way it's supposed to be. A Breviary of Sin. And in the introduction to that book, he said there once was a time when Roman Catholics would line up to confess their sins to the priest. There once was a time when Protestants would rise up to say the general confession. Do you know, I was actually in a Protestant church not long ago not an Anglican or Episcopal church. It was another denomination, good gospel-preaching church, but they had no confession of sin. I was stunned by that. It was a time when Protestants used to rise up and confess their sins in the general confession, and Catholics would line up to say their confession to the priest. There was a time when a man would lose his temper at the breakfast table and wonder whether or not he should really go to Holy Communion on Sunday. There was a time when a young mother would be envious of her older, more intelligent, more attractive sister and wonder if that threatened her very salvation. But alas, Plantinga says, the long shadow of sin has dimmed. And now, the accusation, you have sinned, is said more again with a wink in your eye and a lilt in your voice. We don't take it seriously. We do not acknowledge and whale. But we need to remember that the only way that you can acknowledge Amber Whale is because of grace. God only wants us to mourn so that we can see ourselves as we really are and see our need for a Savior. Turn to Luke chapter 15. And I want to read to you a story that you're very familiar with. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, that is, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Now, you know this story, the story of the prodigal son, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. 
If you put it in its first century context, it would have been very shocking to most of the people, far more so than it is to us. It's a very pedestrian story to us. But in the ancient world, children were not allowed to get their inheritance until the father died. So when the young son comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now, he is basically saying, I wish you were dead. Now, the father could have resisted him. The father could have thrown him out. The father could have said, I'm going to change my will, and you're not going to get anything. But instead, we're told that the father gave him what he wanted. And the young man goes off, and in another version of the story, we're told he squandered his living. It says reckless living here. Another translation says loose living or profligate living. And you can just imagine what that was. Young man, free of his father's control, lots of money, lots of time on his hand, and he goes out and he squanders his inheritance. And he squanders it so quickly now that he becomes to be in need. And there's this picture of a downhill spiral. Remember, he's a Jew living in the first century, and he's so far down that when he looks up, he still sees bottom because what's he doing? Feeding the pigs. And not just living with pigs, which would have been anathema to a Jew in the first century. He's longing even for the food, the pods that the pigs eat. Now, this is a man that is at the bottom. And the next verse says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Can you imagine what was going through his mind? At first he says, I'm out of here. This, this, I'm going back home. And I'll, plead, I'll tell dad I'm sorry. Now, whether he was willing to acknowledge and bewail, we don't know. But he was at least willing to acknowledge that he'd made a mistake. Now imagine going home. I can just imagine what was going through his mind and his heart at that time. He's getting closer to the house. He's beginning to wonder, what's dad going to do? What would many of us do if the prodigal came home, having shamed us and the family publicly, and now comes back cap in hand? He's probably wondering, is dad going to slam the door in my face? Because that's what dad could do, and he'd have every right to do it. Look at verse 17. He came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your sons. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This father stood at the window every day, praying and longing for that son who had shamed him to come home. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him. That meant he was keeping vigil. And he ran out to meet him. And he didn't slam the door. He didn't lecture him. What did he do? He said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Let me tell you the powerful thing about this parable is that most people tend to think that this young man got converted when he was down there with the pigs. That's not what the text says. The text says he came to his senses. He acknowledged he'd made a mistake. But his heart was never really changed until he got home. And instead of getting from his father what he deserved, he got from his father what he didn't deserve. And again, we call that grace. And his heart was broken. And I believe from that point forward, he was a different Man. How do you see yourself in relationship to God? Do you see yourself as pretty good? Do you see yourself as passing muster? Or do you acknowledge and bewail your manifold sins and your wickedness? Do you mourn over the way that you have grieved God's heart? Tim Keller once said, Acknowledging means you recognize you broke God's law. Bewailing means you recognize that you've broken the Lord's heart. Do we realize that every single sin, we break the Lord's heart? Almost every Good Friday, we sing that hymn, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed Him to the tree? Well, let me ask you a question. Were you there? Were you there when they crucified your Lord? How many of you were there? We were all there, folks. We all. And as one of the great hymns of the church says, And still our wrongs may weave thee now new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow place round you. And yet Jesus Christ mounts the arms of the cross and looks at us and sees us not as we imagine ourselves to be, but as we really are. And he turns toward heaven and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when those words begin to penetrate your heart, you will begin to mourn your sin. And when you begin to mourn your sin, you will find a God whose property is always to have mercy. That's the power of the gospel. That's the message of grace. And that's what it means to mourn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. God grant that we may be the kind of people who, when we say those words every Sunday, mean them. 
God grant that we may acknowledge and bewail and mourn our manifold sins and wickedness, that by Jesus Christ and his grace we may be comforted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you love the unlovable, that you love us even though we are sinners, and that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to mount the arms of the cross that we might be redeemed, redeemed at countless cost. Grant us the grace to see ourselves as we really are, to mourn our sins, to acknowledge and bewail them, and to receive your grace and comfort that we might be different people, citizens of the kingdom of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you.